friends. Boy, it was a beautiful, beautiful day today. We are in part number four of a series we're doing on the problem of evil and how God deals with the idea of evil in our world today and uh, ultimately how he's going to handle it. We are in part four we have tonight and then two more sermons that will finish this month for us. Uh, next week we'll talk about the final restraint that God is using in the world to withhold evil. And then finally, uh, in two weeks, we will spend time talking about God's ultimate plan for evil in the world and how it will be eventually destroyed. So far, what we've tried to do is lay a foundation of what really evil is, where it came from, what we're supposed to do about it. and. In light of living in a world that is full of evil right now, how God restrains evil in a broken and sinful world. And so we started out several weeks ago talking about what evil is, and we said that Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 is probably the simplest place in the scripture where we can define evil, where the prophet said, Woe to those people who call good evil, and call evil good. Evil is defined simply like this. It is the opposite of that which is good, or the opposite of that which is the will of God, things that God has ordained and wanted for life to order. And so when we depart from God, when we depart from the way that God wants us to live, we are exposing and living in a world of evil, and we certainly live in one like that. Uh, we asked the second question then was this, well, where did evil come from? It's kind of been a hot topic, difficult question for people to uh, consider. In fact, every major world religion, every major worldview, the way that people look at the world, answers this question of what is wrong with the world and why is it wrong? Well, what has happened to the world? Because there's something that is uh, in every mankind that desires for things to be better than what they are. So why? Christianity, like all other answers, has an answer. It ties it to the Garden of Eden where we see Adam and Eve, and Eve specifically deceived by Satan, uh, considering that, uh, first of all, evil comes from the rebellion of mankind. When we know God's will, but we turn from it to do something else, certainly human rebellion is the source of evil. But we also see in Genesis chapter 3, not just God telling Eve what to do and then Eve disobeying that commandment, but we see a, another figure there. That figure is Satan showing up in the form of a serpent. And he has an influence over Eve. Now, he doesn't cause Eve to sin. In fact, it's Eve's own reasoning and thinking that leads her down the path to sin. But we do see in that story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 a force or an influence that wants to take the mind of mankind and turn it away from God. And so Satan would introduce to Eve some concepts about God that simply weren't true, that God was holding out on a good life for Eve so she should eat from this tree and disobey God because she'll have better life if she does that. What Satan ultimately convinced Eve of and what he is continuing to convince people of is that if we swap God out of the throne of our life and place ourselves on the throne of our life and we run our own lives, we'll have the best life possible. That's the root of sin and the root of evil. So what are we supposed to do about it? How do we live in the world of evil? Well, we talked about a few things in the first week. We mainly said that we are to be anchored in the promises that God has given us, that there will be someday a world without evil. So we're anchored in the promises. We're engaging in the work. We pray like Jesus prayed. Father, we want your will to be done on earth 
just like it's done in heaven. And we work towards that. We fight towards that. We, we uh, work against evil and injustice. And so we might have a world that is better in anticipation of the world to come. And ultimately, we engage in the restraints that God has given us to restrain evil in this world. We've already start, started talking about a couple of them. The first one we mentioned was the first restraint was God's design of the human conscience. The human conscience. You might call this the personal restraint. God has written the moral law on the heart of every person that ever has lived. Hardwired an alarm system in each of us that monitors our thoughts and actions and alerts us when we are doing wrong and reminds us that we ought not to be doing wrong but to do right. But we said in, the week, in that week when we talked about that, that we most certainly as humans can disable that thing in us, that conscience. We can harden our conscience and sear our conscience so that we're no longer responsive to that. The second restraint that God gave us is the relational restraint. And this is found in the home structure that he has set up, the family. God designed the home as the training ground for children to be raised up to be taught what is right and wrong, what is good and not good, things we ought to do and things we ought not to do. And children are taught to respect right and wrong as it is taught by their parents in the home. And we certainly understand that in each of these cases, yes, even the home, just like the conscience, can be disabled. It can be broken down to the function in which it doesn't work. And we encourage you at that time to consider the church as the alternative family to those that don't have the family that is raising them to know the difference between right and wrong to support that family at times when it's disabled. So we've come to the third God-ordained restraint of evil. We've talked about the personal restraint, the conscience of mankind that, that we ought to know right and wrong. We talked about the relational constraint, the family where right and wrong is supposed to be learned so that we live right and avoid wrong. But tonight we're going to talk about this third restraint. God ordained against evil, and I'll call this the societal restraint, and that is civil authority, civil authority. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this topic in our culture is sort of a hot button issue right now, how we as people are supposed to interact with those that are in positions of authority. Um, it's been an intensely hot topic in our culture for the last several months, the last maybe couple years specifically. And I think it's important for us to come back to Scripture, both for those that work in positions of civil authority, to really reconsider and look at Scripture the way that the Bible talks about that position, and for those of us that live in the culture that has civil authority, how we're to interact with them. Let's look at it from both angles tonight. This restraint is not based upon the individual. Civil authority is not based upon the individual personal restraint. It's not based upon the family, but, it's, but in the organization of the society itself, society itself being organized. This becomes particularly important and vital to curb evil, evil pardon me, that is not restrained by the personal and the relational. Most likely we are facing an intense amount of difficulty in our culture with regards to civil authority because we're seeing a breakdown in personal restraint and relational or family restraint. As we see those two things, both the human conscience and the family continue to erode and to break down, the pressure is continuing to find itself on 
the civil authority. That's probably why we're experiencing such difficulty. If you notice, uh, uh, there's a little bit of a succession in these three that we've talked about so far, we're talking about tonight, um, it, in, especially in the way that they have increasingly severe threats, so to speak. If you think about the conscience, the personal restraint, the biggest challenge when you violate your conscience is the piling on of guilt. Um, guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is a motivator. It tells us when we're doing things that are wrong. It invites us to, uh, to change and to come back and do things that are right. Um, and so conscience, the, the, the problem of conscience is that when we violate it, we have guilt. Well, on the next level, if you have the family, when you violate um, the, the conditions of the family and you violate what is right and wrong, we see the, the, that invokes the rod of correction, so to speak, or punishment that happens within the family. But these successive restraints carry increasingly severe threats. And when we reach civil authority, it's not just guilt that you feel when you violate civil authority. And it's not just a rod of correction in the safety of the home, but it can be even a greater force. Civil government is a God-ordained institution with a primary function to restrain evil. So the primary responsibility of civil authority is twofold that we're going to talk about tonight. We'll look at just two passages of Scripture. The one is Romans 13, the other is 1 Peter chapter 2. There are two, two reasons we have civil authority. One is to restrain evil, and the other is to reward or encourage good, or the, good behavior, those that do good. So two passages tonight. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, and then we'll come back to Romans 13. I'm going to read just a couple verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. In verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, or every institution ordained for the people, you might say. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or the king or the governors as sent by him to local regions to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people now let's try to make a couple, couple observations about this text first of all it's important for you, for you to remember uh, we just went through first Peter um, less than a year ago on Sunday nights, it's important for us to remember, recall to our memory, that Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are dispersed through this world who were experiencing an incredible amount of social frustration because they were Christians. Uh, there wasn't yet an organized attack upon Christians by the government just yet at this time. Peter's writing in the mid to late 60s most likely, and um, the, the civil government has not yet organized itself around the attack of Christians but in local social uh, environments, Christians were facing a lot of difficulties. And there were a lot of people in governmental positions in which Peter was writing that were um, treating Christians very, very wrong, persecuting them, hating them, slandering them. And yes, even at times their lives were even being taken. And what does he tell them to do in verse 13 to these institutions? This one word, submit or be subject to them. Submit yourselves to the Lord. 
uh, submit yourselves for the Lord, pardon me, to every authority instituted among men. To the individual, he has said, submit to the law of God and to your conscience. To the child, he says, in the next generation, submit to the law of God and your parents. But to the citizen, to the citizen of a nation, he says, submit to the law of God as enforced by civil authorities. He says specifically to submit to the king. And in this time, every, every nation, every place had kings. This would be the supreme authority. In Rome, they had what were called emperors. And the king represented the highest court or the highest law in that land. And this submit to governors is a general term meaning as one who has authority. And so in this context, it would be the lesser uh, civil officials or authorities, just like it was organized in Rome where there was, um, you know, cer certainly the Caesar in, in Rome, but then there were other magistrates and leaders that were sent to other places. And he's saying, be willing to submit both to the king and to governors. And he shows you the purpose in verse 14 of these leaders. Now, it's a different time and a different place for us to discuss are leaders actually today doing the thing that God has ordained them to do? That's certainly a question that we have to ask and wrestle with. But here is the purpose revealed in Scripture for God giving us civil authorities or governments. In verse 14, he says, To governors that are sent by them, we ought to submit. They are sent by the supreme authority, the emperor, to punish those who do evil. Those that do evil ought to be punished. And to praise those who do good. So we are to submit ourselves to these leaders because they are sent by him, the emperor, to punish evildoers and commend those who do well. Praise for well-doers. This would be like rewarding those for good citizenship. Now, um, we don't see this as active as maybe we would like to think that we should see, but there are times in which we see our government rewarding those or, or honoring those that are good citizens like the Medal of Freedom and, and maybe on a more local level honoring those that give great community service. So local leaders most certainly do this. Um, I was reading this really interesting article in, in getting ready for this where there was a, a police force in Canada, uh, in a local province in Canada, that actually um, issued their police officers, Tim, you'll like this, you would really enjoy doing this, that, did you have you heard this story? In Canada, they actually um, commissioned their police officers to pull people over and write them tickets for doing things that were good. So, and, and they could actually redeem this ticket for like a free movie uh, entrance or some food or like you know they had concession stands at at local events. And so they, the cops were literally you know like the, the the blue lights behind you in the mirror that we're so used to you know like ah or maybe just me and. Um, and, and getting pulled over, and they would be like, we're writing you a ticket for doing something right, like maybe helping out in something, or may, maybe you know, coming to a complete stop. They would pull people over for coming to a complete stop. And, and amazing, right? Like, you, you're like, no, no, I really did. Just think how defensive these people would be at the beginning of this. Like, I didn't do anything, you know? <laughs> like, I just want to reward you for doing well. It's amazing, actually, because, Tim, you'd be interested in this. The crime rate in this area. It took about two years for people to get used to what they were doing, but they, the cops had actual quota to meet to writing good tickets. And the crime rate began to dwindle because the attitude of the people in being rewarded for doing well was just changing them. And the relationship between authority and the citizens was uh, changing 
um, over the over several years, and they're they're I think they're 12 years into this um, process, and it's dramatically changing the environment. But government was meant to do that. It was meant to hold up citizens in which they find to be doing things well to make them exemplary for other citizens, to honor them in a way that makes us look at them and say, I, I want to participate in this as well. So government was definitely intended to do that. But on the flip side of that very same coin, with the intention of driving positive behavior, government was also to punish evildoers. Uh, you see here in verse 14 when he says that governors were sent by him to punish those who do evil. Jesus said all authority was given to him, heaven on earth, but he delegated that authority to the church for many reasons, but we see also that government has authority as well. This admonition to submit is set for us. Let, let me just get the context. The idea for us to submit to the government and the authority is set in the greater context of encouraging Christians on how they live and walk a good life here in this world. If you go back just a couple verses before, listen to what Peter says. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That means those that don't believe. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see by your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And then he instructs the, uh, about submitting to civil authorities. Then he comes down to verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish men. So the context by which he's asking us to be submissive to civil authority in the hopes that we might restrain evil is this idea of how do we really live quiet, peaceful, godly lives for the sole purpose of influencing those that are not believers to look at the conduct of our lives and say, they must be different. How do I live to be like them? Now let's go back to Romans 13 for a couple points, then we'll be done tonight. <clears throat> so Cameron read verses 1 through 7. There's a lot to talk about. We won't talk about the taxation tonight. We'll save that for April. Um, now I want to remind you again, just like when Peter was writing, Paul also was writing to a place in a period of time when Christians were living in absolute monarchy with very heavy taxation, incredible, incredibly heavy taxation, way more than what we are taxed, um, intense military occupation of their towns and their areas. So Peter's writing to a group of people that are heavily burdened by taxes, way more than us, um, occupied under the threat constantly of military. That's how Rome gathered their power and maintained their power. And there were, at this time, Christians and Jews alike who were viewed as aliens, enemies, unworthy, underprivileged. In fact, in this culture, there was upwards of nearly 60 million people considered to be, at this time, slaves. Now, this is not like the transatlantic slave trade of the 18th century in America. Uh, slaves were those that were more like indentured servants, those that owed money, those that um, really couldn't possess land. And so this was much more like an oligarchy where a certain core, small group of people who were wealthy controlled the society. And that's what they were writing in. And yet, every person, he says, is to be submissive to these governing authorities. Yes, these governing authorities that are controlled by an incredibly small group of people in this oligarchy. But why? 
Well, first of all, in verse 1, he says that civil government is actually by divine design of God. Let every soul submit to the authorities over him. He didn't designate any particular type of government. It might be hard for us to believe that at times, but God actually didn't uh, ordain and designate one type of government to operate. So it could be monarchy, democracy, republic. Government as it exists in any form is a gift of God so long as it functions to restrain evil. When government loses its sight of its objective to restrain evil and, and uphold that which is good, when it loses sight of that, it's lost sight of its divine design. And we could talk about that at another time, but we're talking about us today. Um, and this last part says this, that those who are in authority there in verse 1, are there because they've been appointed by God. Now, I have to confess to you, I wouldn't actually know this if the Bible didn't tell me that. Would you all agree? Uh, like, do you even wrestle at times to believe that? Especially during election year? That's hard, isn't it? That's really hard for us to wrestle with. We have to think about that. But Scripture says that those who are there... Uh, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whew. The second thing I want you to see in verse 2 is this. Not only is that true, but verse 2 says that rebellion, l l let's read verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. When our primary objective in life becomes to establish a kind of government that we want and, and one that we are more focused on than really being the kind of people that God wants us to be, we've lost. We need to back up and refocus. Let me just say it that way. Number three, um, uh, the result of not submitting to, verse three, pardon me, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. So here's the result of submitting to civil authority. There's no fear of it. And here's how God wants us to view civil authority in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Here's how God wants us to view government civil authority. Notice he says it is not for nothing that he wears the sword. Today, maybe a different version, but God has ordained government to have the ultimate, you might say, threat to be used on those who cannot or will not be restrained otherwise. And God supports that. Now, I think it's important for us to note, uh, just to speak specifically about the condition that's happening in our culture right now, that there most certainly are, like in every profession, in every field, in every line of work, outliers that don't align with the way that the intended work is to be done. Most certainly there are. But for the most part, the majority of our experience, both with civil authority, with government, there are those that are attempting to do the very things that they are called to do in this role. And we, as God's people, ought to be um, willing to submit to that and see them as God's servant. So let me finish by saying this. We obey and submit those who represent civil authority, which is ordained by God. When the Bible tells us to submit to authorities, it's asking us not only because they have authority and power from God to punish, but also because 
they are the ones that are to in our society lift up that which is good and to be honorable and so we you and I need to not only obey but we also need to honor the authorities and pray for them pray for them we need to be people that are on our knees especially in this time of year that are constantly laying before God those that are not just in the highest seats of office or the highest seats of power in our country, but those that are even on the local level, those that represent us in the Senate and the House of Representatives, those that manage things locally like, like mayors and um, city councils. We need to lift them up to God that they might become people who know their sole purpose to restrain evil and lift up that which is honorable and good. And we ought to be people that are working towards supporting that, not just be people that are constantly against that. And so we as people believe in God's moral law. We want our conscience to be sensitive to it so that we know right and wrong. I pray that we believe in submission to the family and try our best to be supporting families to be strong and structured so that right and wrong can be taught uh, by mom and dad in the home. We ought to be people that believe in submitting to governmental authority. We believe that God has put each of these restraints in place to encourage both good behavior and discourage evil behavior. So if our goal in this life is to be exemplary people, to live good and honorable lives, to represent the name of God so that by our good works, God is glorified and those who don't know Christ can come to know him, we are called then to live quiet and peaceful or peaceable lives. And so it's a good time for us to ask, um, in what ways are we supporting and helping and securing and being a part of the solution, not just the problem of trying to help all the different facets and the ways that God is trying to restrain evil. Is our conscience sensitive? Are we making sure that we know the difference between right and wrong? Are we taking action to be involved in supporting both our family and those families around us to help right and wrong be taught in the home? And are we people that are willing to uh, submit to and honor and pray for those that are in positions of authority? So that they would be people who discourage evil and reward that as good, that which is good. So evil can be restrained and the gospel can progress. That's the kind of people that God wants us to be. So if the gospel is not something that you have heard, understood, or believed, we most certainly want that to be the primary thing that you begin your walk with God in. That is the very basis, the foundation by which we stand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the very basis by which we have fellowship with God. And if that's not something you have, um, you can come as we stand and sing, and we'll take care of that.